We pray. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. From Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When the Apostle Paul tells us to set our mind on things that are worthy of praise, what should we set our mind on? In other words, what makes something worthy of praise? I often ask my catechism students these kind of questions that are meant to get them to trip up. For instance, thinking of a good work. There is an example of a rich man who has come to church for Easter. He hasn't been in church all year. He, in fact, only comes at Easter. But when he comes, he gives an offering. And at Easter, he shows up, sits in the pew, sings all the hymns, And he gives his offering at the end of $30,000. He earmarks it for benevolence, the fund we have in the church for helping out people in need, the poor and the needy. $30,000 he gives into the offering plate to the benevolence fund. Is that worthy of praise? It certainly is helpful What if, as your pastor, then, I should take that $30,000 and I decide I want to use that $30,000 for something special? So, I purchase a golden crown worth $30,000. And I take that golden crown and I go down to the cemetery to attend the funeral of a man who was on death row and executed on death row And before the body is placed into the ground, I put that crown on the dead man. And there it goes into the ground, buried $30,000. Was that worthy of praise? Which one of the two examples of using $30,000 for something good would you consider worthy of praise? Oftentimes we wonder what is a good work, and maybe it's not what we thought it was. Some of you might like to use essential oils from time to time, and maybe you have a nice collection of essential oils at home. I happen to know uh, that an essential oils bottle that's about this big, it holds about 15 milliliters of oil, can cost up to $100. That little bottle of oil, because of the process involved and how precious that oil is, it can be quite expensive to buy essential oils. Now imagine that with that oil, not only do I have this little bottle, but I went ahead and purchased 12 of those. And I purchased 12 of those little bottles and I I dumped them all into this pitcher, okay? 
So this pitcher is holding 12 ounces of essential oils. In Jesus' day, that little bottle that we might spend $100 on, in Jesus' day, to manufacture that little bottle and the process and what was required of, in his day could cost $2,500. Now are you going to let me dump those all into that pitcher? Twelve of those little bottles? What Judas says is worth 30,000 denarii? A denarii is a day's wage. So if you're thinking about this, Judas is saying that the oils that Mary uses to anoint Jesus' feet are 30,000 dollars. So 300 denarii, he says. I'll make sure I got this number right before I start spending your money. (laughs) Judas said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So 300 days work. So you're talking about a year's salary. Maybe $30,000. So you've got 300 days of work. You've put in a full year in that bottle sitting next to Jesus that Mary has brought. They're gathered for a special dinner in Bethany. Bethany is very near to Jerusalem, which is a problem for Jesus because the people in Jerusalem do not like Jesus. The people in charge do not like what he's preaching. They don't approve of the miracles and signs that he's performing. And in fact, at the end of the day, they're jealous that he's drawing people away from their religious authority to something different. Then you have here Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Martha is busy serving, as she always seems to be. Mary is at Jesus' feet, and Lazarus is leaning back and talking with Jesus. The same Lazarus that just days ago was dead. And Jesus has raised him from the dead, and now he comes to a dinner party at the dead man's gathering. Lazarus is alive, Martha and Mary. And Mary has brought an expensive jar of ointment. It's sealed, and the only way to get it open is to break it open. And when you break it open, you can't hardly save any of it. So the 12 ounces that she's prepared to bring to Jesus is all poured out. When you use that kind of oil and use that much of it, can you imagine the fragrance that filled that house that day? Would you ever forget the fragrance that you smelled that day? For better or for worse. Perhaps, like Judas, we would all be thinking the same thing. To see 300 days worth of work essentially poured down the drain. $30,000 just gone in a few minutes. How many of us would also think, surely, Mary... 
surely Jesus, there must be something better that we could spend this money on. And if it's not giving it to the poor, maybe it's our church budget. Maybe it's the property. Maybe it's our personal savings and investment. What could we accomplish with $30,000 dumped into our lap on Easter? We have to prioritize things. We have to set budgets and make lists. We've got projects to accomplish, and not to even mention the poor. By the time we get our church all fixed up, have we even thought about the poor? Maybe Judas is a step ahead of us. Well, we're not sure about helping the poor because we don't want to get too involved in social things. So what would we do with $30,000? Would any of us be willing to sacrifice a year's salary only to pour it out in one day? Would any of us be willing to give up a chunk of the church's budget only to bury it with a dead man? But Jesus says, let her be. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have. And by the way, we still have them. But Jesus, we do not always have in the same way they did. Who understood what Jesus was saying? Who among us even understands right now what Jesus is saying about this oil and his burial? What is happening is, as the crowds come into the city with the palm processions and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, the king is here. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do they know what they're saying? At the close of our service, the choir is going to be singing a rendition of a hymn called No Tramp of Soldiers Marching Feet. In that hymn, it outlines how Jesus didn't have soldiers marching with him up to Jerusalem. He didn't come with armies. In fact, the hymn says, What fading flowers his road adorn, with palms how soon laid down, no bloom or leaf but only thorn, the king of glory's crown. The soldiers mock the rabble cries, the streets with tumult ring, and Pilate to the mob replies, Behold, behold your king. You see, when it comes to naming value, goodness, worth, we just don't compute like God computes. There's a lot more to God's kingdom. In fact, there is so much more that money to God is basically valueless. The only reason there's any value on money is because of something we can't see. Money gives us the appearance of value, the appearance of goodness, the appearance of accomplishment, the appearance of whatever you want it to give to you, or the lack thereof if you covet it. When Martin Luther was debating this very topic in, the Heidelberg, in Heidelberg, Germany in 1518, he said, you can only comprehend the visible things of God through suffering in the cross. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. 
It is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil. Without the theology of the cross, man misuses the best in the worst manner. Jesus told his disciples to sell everything they had, give it to the poor, and follow him. Now, which is a greater work? The money given to the poor or following Jesus? The only reason abandoning your money, abandoning the idol, abandoning the thing you're clinging to for security in this world, the only reason the money to the poor is worth anything to God is because it was required to teach the disciples to die, to teach them to let go of the things that were weighing down their heart in this world so that they could follow something greater. The only value in offerings is that it requires of you to give something up of yourself because there's something greater at stake. To follow him is the goodness of every work we could do. Not in the act of giving, but in the act of being crucified, deflated, and destroyed. But they didn't understand this. In fact, in verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, risen from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. At this point with Jesus coming to Jerusalem, anticipating him to be crowned, to all outward appearances, Judas was the righteous one. Judas is the one who thinks of the poor. Judas is the one who considers the value of that money and the waste of just pouring it out. Judas is the one thinking and doing and acting Judas is the man who comes on Easter and gives a great offering to the church. But until you zoom out to see the greater picture of what God's doing in our world, until you can see beyond the surface, you'll never comprehend what a good work is. In fact, on the surface, you have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead at the beginning, before, and afterwards, being praised by the crowds on Palm Sunday. And we look at that and say, those are two great works. Raising a man from the dead, being praised as king of Israel, those are some great works. But we've missed the thing in the middle, the thing about Mary, the thing we probably didn't even know was in this story at this point because Palm Sunday is usually about the praises in which it should be. But we missed out on this central key flow in the narrative. Chapter 11 begins with hearing of Lazarus is sick. And the disciples, when they hear that Lazarus is sick, they say, we can't go to Jerusalem. We can't go to Bethany. It's too close to Jerusalem. And they're looking to kill you. When Jesus decides they must go, Thomas responds, we will go. And with all the enthusiasm you could muster in this room, 
He's thinking, we will go, we will die with you, Jesus. But he doesn't understand. When he gets to the tomb, he calls Lazarus forth and says, unbind him, and he lives. A great work has been done, but by doing this work, Jesus triggers a sequence of events that cannot be undone. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is said to be the final sign of Jesus on earth that triggers the priest's response. And the high priest says, It is better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. And from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. It triggers the response of the high priest who now has to make plans to put Jesus to death because he's done too great a work, too close to Jerusalem, and the people are talking about it. The people are going after him. The people are praising him. And the very next story after this is these Gentiles coming to Jesus, asking to meet with him, and Jesus says, my hour has come. See, in the midst of something we would say was so great to raise a man from the dead, you have the unfolding of these events that mean the hour of Jesus' death has come. And right in the middle is a woman pouring out this expensive perfume of $30,000, and Jesus says, it's for my burial. Do you see what Jesus is thinking? The anointing of Jesus at Bethany is marking the meaning of Jesus' triumphal entry. That his entry into Jerusalem, which would be, for all the prophecies that have been written, the royal anointing and enthronement of the king, the one who is finally going to come to take the throne and be crowned king of Israel, Jesus says is anointing for his burial. It made no sense to them. The only way that we know a good work is to know Jesus on the cross. There's many works in this world that have the appearance of being good. And yet behind the scenes is the plotting of the priests. The secret motives of Judas, who wanted to use the money for himself, who was stealing out of the offerings of people, who ends up betraying Jesus to death for some coins. By going to Jerusalem at this moment, that he has raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is substituting his own life for Lazarus. He came to Bethany because his friend was dead, raised him knowing that in place of giving Lazarus life, Jesus was giving up his. He unbinds Lazarus, the linen strips, the face cloth, because he's the one that's going to be bound by those linen cloths. You see what Jesus is doing. And by marking it with this anointing of Mary, he's signifying that he's come to Jerusalem to die. To die, but to die a king's death. This lavish offering 
was fitting. Because it is the last chance for us to mark the significance of his being lifted up on the cross. With no tramp of soldiers marching feet, the fading flowers his road adorns. So what good work are you capable of? What offering could be lavish enough for what Jesus has done for us? Is there anything we could give that would ever be enough? The $30,000 that maybe you have in your savings, is that enough? The point is not the money. The point is what you're thinking. How your heart responds to those words I just said. The point is to see that if the pastor were to take that little 15 millimeter bottle, pour it in here, and then pour another one, and pour all 12 into here, and then pour it out on the ground, and you say, this is $30,000 of the church's money. After Jesus is raised from the dead, would you ever forget that smell? Amen.